We are reading from Exodus uh, chapter 33 by way of background uh, to Psalm 99. So we're turning in the church Bible to page 92. Page 92, Exodus chapter 33. And immediately before this, Uh, While Moses was up the mountain, the people had made uh, the golden calf and had sought to worship God uh, in this way that was not prescribed uh, and set this uh, calf up as a representation of the Lord. And so now we read in chapter uh, 33. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place and the people you brought up out of Egypt and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the Tent of Meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young assistant Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, 
If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Amen. Three in the Church Bible. Uh, Psalm 99. We have been following a theme uh, from Psalm uh, 96 uh, through uh, to Psalm 99. And the theme has been the Lord reigns. This phrase that is repeated in one way or another in each of these uh, Psalms. Uh, and we've been seeing that part of the challenge um, of um, a section in God's word such as this is to see what is different in each successive portion. What aspect of the reign of Christ is it that God brings out in Psalm 96 and then something different in Psalm 97, something different again in 98, and something different again in 99. And we have noted that in Psalm 96 we have a general overview of this great truth, the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then in Psalm 97 that narrows down and the focus now is upon Christ reigning in judgment. And then a couple of weeks ago we looked at Psalm 98 and we saw that uh, there's another aspect of Christ's reign that is developed here. He reigns in salvation. And now this morning as we come to Psalm 99, uh, the very clear theme is the Lord reigns in his holiness. Christ reigns in his holiness. And we can be absolutely sure that that is the, um, the theme and the note that is struck in this psalm. Because the phrase, he is holy, is a bit like a chorus in a song. Look at verse 3 at the end of it. He is holy. Look at verse 5 at the end of it. He is holy. And then look again at verse 9. For the Lord our God is holy. And you remember we noted in all of these Psalms the name Lord, which now occurs seven times in this Psalm. It's in capital letters. L-O-R-D, capitals. It's the covenant name of God. It's the name that speaks of God acting in salvation. It's the name that anticipates the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And indeed we saw in an earlier study how uh, one of these Psalms is quoted directly in the letter to the Hebrews referring to Christ. 
So we're thinking uh, this morning about Christ reigning in his holiness. Uh, And you'll see that there are three points that we want to to make from our sermon, uh, our study this morning uh, of this psalm. Uh, And they're listed on the rear side of the order of service. The psalm breaks into three very evident and obvious parts with these words, he is holy, ending each section. So with verses 1 to 3, and it's talking about Christ reigning or ruling the nations in his holiness. And then with verses 4 and 5, and again the refrain, he is holy. And this develops the uh, aspect of Christ establishing justice again because of his holiness. And then uh, the final section from verse 6 through to verse 9, Christ answering prayer again in and due to his holiness. Before we come to look at each of these points, we need to just stand back for a little moment and ask ourselves the question, what do we mean by holiness? And as uh, holiness is developed in Scripture with regard to you and me, it has the primary sense of um, uh, moral and morality. The kind of people that we are to be. Uh, But there's another aspect, and it's a more important and more fundamental aspect. uh, Perhaps not more important is not the right way to put it, but more fundamental aspect with regard to God. And it is this. Holiness, God's holiness, is his otherness. It is his separateness. It is his uniqueness. It is the fact that God is altogether different from his creation. He exists in a category of his own. No other individual, no other being is like him. And nothing that is inanimate, in other words, no other part of creation uh, is like him. It is God's otherness then. And yes, then, flowing from that otherness of God is this moral perfection, uh, which is uh, then to impact you and me. Although I think there is a sense in which both those aspects ought also to be found in you and me. And we'll come back to that at the end of our study. If we are Christians, if Christ has done a work in our lives that has taken away our sin and made us new creatures, then we too are to be separate. We too are to be other than this world. We too are to be distinct And unique as people on this earth. And that will manifest itself in purity and holiness and um, being like Christ. 
So we come then to think about uh, our theme then this morning. Christ reigns in his holiness. He reigns in his otherness. And he reigns in his moral perfection. And he does that, first of all, as he rules the nations. Let's look at verses 1 to 3 and read them. The Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim, let the earth shake. Great is the Lord in Zion. He is exalted over all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Note the phrase, the nations, verse 1. The nations, verse 2. It can be translated as the peoples, verse 1. And the peoples, uh, verse 2. But it is the idea of all humanity. All humanity. In whatever way it assembles uh, itself. So we might think of the family. uh, And Christ rules and reigns over family life. We might think of the community. We tend to to think in terms of Carrick Fergus Burra. We think in terms of district councils. In Northern Ireland. Uh, We think then in terms of the province. We think then in terms of the United Kingdom. And all of these entities. Wherever you find an entity of humanity. There should be there. A recognition. That Christ reigns. And so we can apply it. In the right across every facet of human assembly. Boys and girls in your school. It is right and appropriate that there is a school assembly each day. In which there is a recognition that your school life, it is being lived out today before God and under God. God is the source of all truth. There's no mass, there's no language, there's no science that God has not created and that he is not to be Lord over. Or when we go into the realm of work, and sadly this is one of the areas of conflict in our own nation today. The Christian should be able uh, to express his or her faith in their work. Not that they're there to evangelize and proselytize. No, that's not why you're at work. You're there to serve your employer. But you should be able to serve your employer in a way that honors your Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, in the things that you're asked to do, you should be allowed to express your faith. And if you're asked to do something that is contrary to his moral perfection and his moral requirement of you, the employer, that assembly of humanity, should recognize that there is an authority higher than him or her. It applies In the world of medicine, doctors are not at liberty, nor are nurses to do anything that man can do. Um, 
their role is to preserve life uh, and to be instruments of healing. And so uh, because of this truth that Christ reigns with over medicine then it means that we cannot allow abortion nor can we allow at the other end of the spectrum the killing of the elderly or those who have been incapacitated by weakness. Why not? Because there is a throne of authority that is greater than the doctors or the consultants or the skills that man has developed. We could apply it again to the realm of policing and judiciary. Again, we have another assembly of humanity. And here again, too, there has to be that recognition. As I sit in judgment as a judge on this case, or as I represent someone as a solicitor in this case, there is a God in heaven. Christ reigns over this court. And therefore this court has a responsibility to get to the truth. And I, whatever part I have in these court proceedings, whether as a plaintiff or as a witness or as a member of the judiciary, I have a responsibility to recognize the authority of Christ. And this is the thing that is missing more and more in our nation. And when we lose sight and when a people, either in a family or in a school or in medicine or in the judiciary or in the um, houses of parliament, lose the sense that Christ reigns over the nations, then accountability goes. Accountability is lost. And people do what is right in their own eyes. And as a result of that then, individual rights become the big demand of people. And legislation has to be brought in then to protect rights. Instead of people recognising, I am an accountable citizen. Not only to my employer, not only to my fellow employees or other children in school that I'm um, studying alongside but I'm accountable to Christ and so I have a responsibility before him as to how I treat other people and so here this first point is establishing Christ in his holiness in his otherness and in his moral perfection that he has authority over all men and how different he is from uh, people how different he is even from you and me how different he is from the gods that the nations have created and worshipped how different he was from the gods of Egypt the god Osiris uh, and Ra how different he was from the God of Canaan, Baal, uh, and the God of the Moabites, Chemosh, and the God of the Babylonians, Marduk. All of these gods 
um, were gods that that were uh, brought damage and harm into the lives of others. Whereas this Christ, as we shall see as our study goes forward, is the one who brings blessing into our lives. And so we're set here this great truth. The Lord reigns. Christ rules the nations in his holiness. And his holiness is what will be seen in the end in the nations of the earth. And so what's the response then that people ought to make? It is let the nations tremble. Let the earth shake. You see, there's that aspect of accountability. The nations trembling. The nations shaking. Expressing and recognizing their accountability to this God. But look at verse 2 where it talks about how this greatness and holiness of the Lord Jesus Where are the nations, where are the peoples to see it? On earth. Where they're to see it in Zion. They're to see it in the church. They're to see this otherness of Christ in our assemblies together. So that he uh, is recognized and honored by us. The church, we're not free to do whatever we want. We always must have a consciousness that Christ reigns over all things. Let's notice then, secondly, from this psalm, how Christ establishes justice in his holiness. Because as we've touched upon, the nations... And the assemblies of men are by and large, they're not places of justice. They're not places of righteousness. Remember a number of years ago being involved very closely with someone from the police service. uh, And they were telling me about being in uh, a court situation. uh, And they had witnessed how a case had been handled in this court. A case that they had put a huge amount of time into and they knew the rights and the wrongs of this case. But when it came into court, there was a very clever defending barrister. And there was a a prosecuting barrister who hadn't done his homework properly. And the consequence was that the defending barrister of the person who had done wrong was able to pull the wool over the eyes of the judge. And this policeman said to me afterwards, he said, Harry, this is not about justice. This is a game. Isn't that a tragedy? To be said of a court in our land that had serious crime before it and it was in the eyes of this policeman who had spent his life uh, in in, uh, dealing with these things 
again. It's a game. It's not about justice. And isn't that often the reality that we live with in our lives? In our families. Things happen. Relationships become broken and damaged. And division can grow within families. uh, And injustice can be done between members of families. In fact, sometimes the closer the relationship it almost seems the more um, um, severe or the more um, vindictive the injustice can be. That's boys and girls in school. Somebody um, does something wrong to you. And the teacher comes and the teacher's made aware of it. And the teacher doesn't... Uh, Uh, look at the thing carefully enough or thoroughly enough and the teacher sides uh, and uh, with injustice and the boy or girl that has done wrong they are not punished as they should be and perhaps you're the one who is innocent and you're the one who suffers and so it happens also in the nations Nations are not going to be places of justice unless Christ reigns over the nations. Because it is Christ and the fear of the Lord that causes us then to know that we must do justly. Because if I do not do justly by you, or if we do not do justly by one another, We are answerable to the Lord himself. And so these um, verses then go on to show us, verse 4, the king is mighty. Look at the capital K. It's rightly so because it's referring to Christ. Christ is mighty. He loves justice. You have established equity. In Jacob you have done what is just and right Christ established justice at great personal cost he had to leave heaven he had to come to a sin filled world he lived a sinless life he underwent a sin bearing death why To absorb the justice of God. That wrath, that righteous wrath of God that you and I deserve for our sin. And so when we think about justice, we cannot think about justice outside of or apart from the cross. Where we see, um, uh, in a sense, a great injustice being done but done by God out of love and mercy for the purpose of granting us salvation and justice. And so in that cross, the wrath of God is satisfied and the grace of God is secured. 
And that's what happens whenever you repent and you believe. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is your response that you've got to make to Christ. It's to repent and to believe. And it's to have the justice of God that your sin deserves, hell. And instead of you taking it, Christ, you say, I believe Jesus. That's what you were doing on the cross. You took hell for me, that I might be forgiven. And so we see here that the king loves justice. And he's established justice by his own life and death, as we read those words, equity, in the light of the New Testament. And then where is this justice uh, to be found again? Where is it to be seen in the surf? It should be seen in Jacob. And who's Jacob? Jacob again is his redeemed child. Remember Jacob um, is the father, becomes Israel. And he's the father um, after Abraham and Isaac. He's the father of God's people. And so justice is to be found among God's people. How important it is that in the church of Jesus Christ we deal with one another justly and righteously. That we hold one another to account as we were thinking about last week. In a God-honouring way. In a loving manner. Because we then reflect Christ when we do that. And we reflect him to a watching world. And the world sees, yes, that there is such a thing as justice. And it is tied in with the person and the work of Christ in individual lives, in family life and in church life. And you see, it is this too that helps you and me cope with injustice. Think, for example, of one of Jacob's sons, Joseph. Think of the injustice he experienced at the hands of his brothers. When he came with them on a mission of kind, came to them, sorry, on a mission of kindness, what did they do? They abused him in all kinds of ways. Stripped him of his cloak. Took the food from his hand. Threw him into a pit. They sat and they ate while he was calling out to them for them to take him out of this horrible pit. And they closed their ears. And then they sold him. As if he was like one of the sheep. Or one of the camels. You see, Joseph was the child of God in that family at that time. The only one of those twelve that was righteous. That was in a relationship with God through Christ. And Joseph years later, 13 years later, he was able to say to those brothers, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. For the saving of much people. You see, that's how you and I as believers were to look at injustice. 
when it happens to you boys and girls in school, the teacher deals with you unfairly. When it happens to you men and women at work and you're dealt with unfairly. When it happens in our families. When it happens in community relations. And there's not justice from those who should give it. The teacher or the parent or the police or the judiciary or whatever. We cast ourselves upon him who judges righteously. And we say like Joseph. In a way in which we can't even understand at that time. Yes, he meant that for evil. She meant that for evil against me. They meant that for evil towards me. But God is able to turn it for good and to save out of the midst of it. And that's because Christ, his son, establishes justice in his holiness. This is the outflow of his holiness. That he will establish justice. Let's notice then thirdly. And finally this morning. How in his holiness. Christ answers prayer. And in a sense. We are, we are narrowing the focus here. All the time. From his reign over the earth to his establishment of justice. And it's gone from Zion to Jacob. And now look at how it comes down to the lives of Moses and Aaron and Samuel. And they're examples, individuals. And here now Christ answers prayer in his holiness. Palmer Robertson uh, has a very simple but a very profound statement. Answering prayer is, the f- is a function of the holiness of God. Answering prayer is a function. It's an outworking of the holiness of God. Sometimes his answer will be no. His holiness exposes the imperfections of the prayer. Uh, and Uh, Often his answer is yes as he reveals his purpose for his people. Look at this here and see um, how it happens. Verse 6. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called on the Lord and he answered them. He spoke to them from the pillar of cloud. They kept his statutes and the decrees he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were to Israel a forgiving God, though you punished their misdeeds. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord your God is holy. And uh, the verb that's repeated here in verse 6 and verse 8 is this verb answer. Answer. And here now we have Moses and Aaron. These men who are called by God to give leadership among the people of God. They are his priests. They represent the Lord to the people. And they represent uh, the people and bring the people before the Lord. 
that um, communication, that two-way communication that we were talking to the boys and girls about, the Lord speaks to Moses and Aaron so that they will speak to the people. And Moses and Aaron speak to the Lord on behalf of the people. With a wonderful illustration of that in Exodus chapter 33. Uh, where um, they come and Moses is interceding for Israel. After a time when she has provoked the Lord. Provoked the Lord. And here's Moses. And he goes out into the tent. And he pleads with the Lord to show mercy to a stubborn uh, people. And we find the same happening in, in Samuel. Um, he, um, as one of the judges, we find him, and as the judge priest, we find him again pleading and praying on behalf of the people. In fact, he says to the people, after a time of major rebellion, Far be it from me that I fail to pray for you. And so this wonderful assurance that Christ answers prayer. The prayers of his people. The prayers of those who have positions of leadership and responsibility in particular. Towards the people. You husbands. And fathers. You have a priestly role in your family. It's your task. Above all others in that household. To communicate the Lord to your family. And to bring your family to the Lord in prayer. And that's why we believe it's right that we should have family worship each day and the father, the husband uh, of the head of the home should lead in that because he is a priest. And then uh, you men who are elders or deacons in the church, you have a leadership role and you are to manifest the Lord um, both um, through bringing his word to bear upon people's lives and also bringing the people to the Lord. And so that we can see the Lord at work in our midst and the Lord answering. But look at the next verses then. It talks about uh, the Lord answering and now answering um, and speaking to them uh, with guidance in verse 7. He spoke to them from the pillar of cloud. They kept the statutes and the decrees he gave them. So seeking the Lord for guidance. And Christ answers the prayer for guidance. How am I to live? How am I to handle this situation in my workplace? This situation in my neighborhood? This situation within my family? When we as individual Christians, when we as families bring these matters to Christ, we believe that he answers our prayers. He will answer them through the ministry of his word. He may answer them through the counsel of an older Christian. 
He may answer them by His providence. When we try to perhaps go in one direction and He closes the door before us. Those are all ways in which He answers the prayers of His people for guidance. And every major decision that you make in life, it should be made only after you have prayed. Pray first, act second. So often we want to act first and then we want to, as it were, baptize our action with a prayer, Lord bless it and make it come to pass. That's the wrong way. That's the wrong way. Begin praying about situations. And then only as the Lord leads by his word, by the counsel of other Christians and by his providence, then do we act. And if we get that order right, and it's a very simple order, but if we get it right, we will spare ourselves a great deal of grief in our lives and our families also. But then look at verse 8. Because here's another aspect of the Lord answering our prayers. Not only as we give leadership, not only as we need guidance, but now we make mistakes. We make mistakes. Never ever think that as a Christian you will always get it right. Because you won't. And I won't. And we as elders, we won't always get it right. And so... Um, uh, but um, this is dealing with this context where we have gone deliberately and that's tying in with what I've just been speaking about where we act first and then pray later and what has to happen well we've got to seek forgiveness Lord I was wrong I was hasty I wanted my own way Um and so we've got to go in repentance and we've got to be careful because if we keep doing this deliberately then we will bring the Lord's chastisement upon ourselves. And we have examples of that in scripture. Think of David. Wasn't content with the woman that the Lord had given him, the wife that he had. He had to have Bathsheba. And the Lord, yes, forgave him. But at what great cost David committed that sin. Remember we saw in our studies in Samuel that uh, the sword never departed from his house. And so if we engage in, <clears throat> in actions without having prayed about them and we're just expressing our own sinful nature and will, we've got to realize, yes, there's always forgiveness but there may well be serious consequences that will come into our lives as a result of that sinful action. You see it again in Abraham when he went down into, when he went down into Egypt. He had no place to be in Egypt. He didn't pray. He went of his own will because there was a famine, because there was this crisis. And that's most likely when he picked up Hagar. As the maidservant. And we know what uh, was what happened later with regard to that situation. So um, a forgiving God. But let's realise that.
the Lord Jesus Christ in his holiness doesn't mean that he can turn a blind eye. And he wants us to grow and he wants us to mature. And so sometimes there's got to come that discipline into our lives. So the Lord reigns in his holiness. What a marvelous thing. He reigns over the nations and every entity of human activity. And he does so in his holiness. And he establishes justice in his holiness. And he will do that for you, his people. May not all uh, be, and may not often or all be evident now, but he will establish justice because of his holiness. And how wonderful it is that Christ answers our prayers in his holiness. And so we ask ourselves this morning, is Christ ruling in my life in his holiness? Am I um, pursuing his justice in my relationships with others? And am I waiting upon him for answers to prayer again in his holiness? Look at the commands at the psalm as we just finish now and how we're to respond. Look at the, what it says in verse 3. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. Verse 5. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain for the Lord our God is holy. Praise and exalt and worship Christ, the Lord our God. Do that in personal life. Do that in family life. Do that in working life. Do that in community life. Do that in all of life. And when we do that, we are revealing Christ in his holiness in his otherness and in his moral perfection because we then are becoming other like him and we're becoming holy like him as we were called to do by Peter in 1 Peter 1 and verse 15 and 16 Amen Let's pray We bless in his holiness. We thank you that he rules the nations. We thank you that he establishes justice. And we thank you that he answers our prayers. We pray that we would, by your grace, become more and more like him. Forgive us, Lord God, where we trust in ourselves and where we lean to our own understanding. Forgive us where we follow our own desires, and where we simply want you, as it were, to rubber stamp what we choose, what we decide. Help us to realize that you are the master, and we are the servants, that you are the Lord, 
and we are the subjects. And to do, our, to do your will must be our great delight. In Jesus' name, Amen.